Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Mist, starring Thomas Jane, Marsha Gay Harden, the entire cast of The Walking Dead. That's not an exaggeration. Part of the Shawshank Redemption cast as well. (laughs) Directed by Frank Darabont. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films, film review podcast that highlights new, old, strange films with fine spirits. And today we're uh, opening up a new spirit today. Russell's Reserve is a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, and it's a single barrel that was um, uh, brewed specially for for our state. And what do you think of that, Matt? Oh, I love it. It's uh, a little bit uh, less smooth than the... Stuff that we sometimes like, whether it be basil or mm-hmm. um, even that, um, what did we have last week? The uh, well, We had the rye last week and we did the flight with the Jefferson's Reserve. Yeah, the Jefferson's Reserve was pretty smooth mm-hmm. too. And then mystery, mystery flight, which whatever, whatever, whatever that was. Whatever that was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, a little bit um, spicy in the front, a little less spicy in the back, but uh, definitely not the smoothest. And that's kind of good. Like it sort of fits, I think, what the the film is tonight and um, yeah excellent so today we're going to be journeying to 2007 and a trip to a pretty underrated film in our criminally underrated yeah in our opinions the mist today we're going to finally get to talk about frank darabont and you know the films he made prior to this and what came after this but this is going to be film two in our cast called king's landing part one and the reason we're calling that king's landing part one is this is something we can come back to Time and time again. Right now we're focusing on the horror films of King. Uh, three of them in the lead up to the new Pet Cemetery coming out next week. But King's Landing Part 2 or 3 could tackle the dramas. And we could look at The Shawshank, Stand By Me, Green Mile. Uh, we could have one about the TV movies. Uh, maybe maybe not. They're, they're all kind of kind of trash. So many series. There's so many different entry points into that. So yeah, Part 1 just focusing on horror. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you there's another part coming at some point exactly so stay tuned true believers before we get into the breakdown of, of this film kind of keeping the flight in in the same theme that is stephen king the question this week is going to be what is the best performance in a stephen king adaptation and there's a lot to pick from sure. you know if he's had 55 different adaptations there's been some great performances over those adaptations so matt what would you say is probably the best performance per this part one horror that's going to remove a couple of options that might otherwise be in contention for me Mm -hmm. so i'm going to stick to what the part one is which be horror right Mm -hmm. it's actually in this movie jesse Mm -hmm. marcia gay harden a terrific actress playing one of the craziest bitches ever in film as miss carmody in this um we'll get to one of the more more remarkable experiences that I've ever had in a theater when we sort of start breaking down the story regarding Miss mm-hmm. Carmody. Mm-hmm. But boy, she comes across in spades and delivers the psychopathic, evangelical, self-righteous, expediation-worthy mistress sent to do the bidding of the Lord so that she can save herself. And man, she's great in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have to I have to echo that 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 statement as well. And we'll get into why it's such a nuance and great performance and you're right, a very theatrical, 
re- reaction driven performance, especially yeah in the theater. If mm-hmm. you get a chance to see it there, you know exactly what we're talking about. Good choice. How about you? I'm gonna have to go with um, Kathy Bates, and you know most people might say I'm leaning towards Annie Wilkes in Misery, which that is a terrific performance. You know she won an Academy Award for that one, but I think she's equally great in uh, Dolores Claiborne as Dolores Claiborne in that adaptation playing a a woman who's trying to prove her innocence that she didn't kill the the woman she was caretaking for and through the backstory we actually this isn't the first time that she's committed murder um she had to kill her abusive husband and i think you know you see the abuse play out and you know the father had kind of an inappropriate relationship with their daughter which all this all comes to fruition but a very off the screen type of performance from Kathy Bates, which I don't think it's, ta- and I don't, and that adaptation doesn't get talked about quite a bit. I talked about last week how I just read that book and I thought it was a phenomenal read. Once you get through that, it's just 350 pages of straight prose, no chapter breaks, not even like paragraph breaks. But I think the performance is underrated. I think the film's underrated and it's quite a powerhouse. And I think this is a film that could actually do with a, with a redo, a remake, so to speak. And someone I'd like to actually see play that character would be Frances McDormand. Oh yeah, I think she'd be like pretty pretty dynamite as as that character that has to find a way to kill husband. That's good. Who's an abusive asshole? Mm-hmm. That's good. So there's some good. back to a day of blood simple a little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah, exa- yeah. exactly. There's very similar kind of kind of parallels there. Mm-hmm. But uh, those are those are great choices, listeners. If you would like, please let us know what. Uh, you think the best performances? I mean, we left a lot on the table. Jack Nicholson, you know, Pennywise, Tim Curry, Bill Skarsgård, even 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 the kids in that in that new it movie. To you know what we talked about last week, Carrie, Sissy Spacek, and Piper Laurie. I mean, we left a lot of great performances, and we didn't even bring up Shawshank or any of that yet. So right. let us know what you think. You know, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Or leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. We'd love to read your responses in the next episode. We really do. Like, please leave it. We do make it a point to go through that stuff. We're getting some pretty interesting things. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to give a shout out to those people that have been on. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and hit us up on any of those uh, media sources. It would be great to hear from you. Well, let's get to what we're here for. Let's get to our breakdown of The Mist. The opening shots of The Mist introduce us to David Drayton, played by Thomas Jane. And right off the bat, he has a pretty cool profession. He's an artist for film posters. And I don't know if you noticed kind of what was floating around the room, but uh, a poster of Pan's Labyrinth. And he was working on a a rendition of Dark Tower, the gunslinger, Roland. But also um, this movie right here, which the poster's literally in this room right now. John Carpenter's The Thing just the art for this this poster this is actually art that was uh drawn by a prolific poster artist drew struzen who you if you lived in the 80s you know this guy's posters you were talking you know blade runner back to the future uh raiders of lost ark do i need to keep going like you know his art and it's a real unique style but what a cool profession for this guy just living in maine 
And I like the Dark Tower nod. He's doing a movie poster for a movie that wouldn't get made for another almost 10 years. And probably not the iteration that... Forgettably win made, yes. <laughs> that anyone was hoping for. Right. But on this fateful night, a uh, storm is is on the horizon. And his wife and his son, you know, shuffle off to the basement. And the surrounding property, the window, his studio is totally destroyed. You know, they wake up the next morning and kind of surveying the damage. And, you know, this boathouse, the tree, it's, it's just totally kaput. And from here, we kind of see this past beef that he's had with this neighbor uh, named Brent Norton, played by Andre, Andre Brower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who I think Andre Brower, I think another King alumni, I think he was in the, the Pet Cemetery or not, the Salem's Lot Rob Lowe version, if I'm not mistaken. I think he had a role in The Stand as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny how a lot of these actors become staples, not only of the same director like Darabount, but within King's lore. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. But they've had some type of past, like some type of lawsuit that's happened before. And they're not like, it's kind of like a shifty neighborly relationship. But it's a little bit different this time, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, so Thomas Jane's character, David Drayton, shows up and, you know, it's kind of prefaced with a a bit of a lead-in with his son. He's like, oh, Dad, you got to go have the conversation with that guy again. He's like, I'm just going to be very straightforward. I'm going to get his insurance information and we're just going to roll on like we just necessarily need to take care of it. However, mm-hmm. we get kind of a twist early on, and that's that the two neighbors who kind of are frenemies actually find a need for each other. Mm-hmm. And um, David Drayton ends up giving Andre, Bauer, Andre Brower's character, what's his name? Brent. Brent, yeah. Mm-hmm. A ride into town because Brent's car isn't working either. And yeah. there's a really cool moment in that, right? Yeah. With the tree. And then the Mercedes. So we don't really know what caused this storm. Uh, kind of looks like heavy winds maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and, a, and a mist bellowing on the lake. Yeah. yeah. So there does seem to be some sort of seaside tragedy that has kind of hit them. Or mm-hmm. that's maybe the direction. Again, set in Maine, right? Mm-hmm. This is set in Maine, like pretty much everything of yep. this. Yep. Um, and... This really nice, what's it, a 1980... Mercedes convertible. It's just crushed under this tree. Mm-hmm. And David Drayton offers his condolences to Brent. And we start to kind of begin to forge, I don't know if I'd say friendship, but at least a peace between these two yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, David Drayton ends up giving... Brent. Yeah, Brent. <laughs> I want to keep calling him Andre Brower because I keep seeing... Anyway, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Gives Brent a ride into town <clears throat> to, to the supermarket. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, with this son. And, they're, you know, they're going to get supplies to, you know, fix up what they can. You know, on the way, they run into a few kind of like army Humvees, mm-hmm. kind of bellowing really fast. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of planting the seeds that something's a little... Something's bigger going on. Something bigger is going on. Yep. Immediately, we get to the supermarket, which essentially, get ready, plant, plant in, get your popcorn, because you're going to be spending like the next hour and 30 minutes in this supermarket. Yeah. Now, this... In screenwriting, in storytelling, this is, I think this is something that's really hard to do. And that's the single location film. One example I can think of, I know a lot of people haven't seen it. I didn't see it until I took a whole class on the guy, is Alfred Hitchcock's lifeboat. Mm-hmm. Literally six or seven people in a lifeboat after a, a ship's been sunk by, I think, a German U-boat. Right. And they're just at drift until someone finds them. That's the whole movie, them in this boat. With and, the great performance 
of all the people that should never be mentioned in a podcast by Tallulah Bankhead. Mm-hmm. So good in that yeah. film. I highly, if you can find it, I don't even know if it's <laughs> at a DVD release. You can find Lifeboat. It's worth your time. Yeah, definitely check it out. Yeah. But films like that, and then we've talked before about Shyamalan's Night Chronicles, Devil, yeah. and you know these films that are in isolate location. I would even kind of throw the thing in there a little bit. Yeah. Look, that's that's movie gold for production studios, right? Single mm-hmm. location, mm-hmm. under $5 million, that's super high concept. Yeah. Of course they like it, because it's really easy to shoot. You don't have to move anywhere. It's one place. Mm-hmm. They want a story that's widely appealing to many people, and yeah. unique, and under $5 million. Yeah. Of course they want that. Exactly. Such easy criteria to put down, mm-hmm. such impossibility to write in any way that anyone gives a damn about. Yeah, and I think if you're going to do that, I think your characters have to be dynamite. Exactly. If those that's because pe- that's all you have. <laughs> exactly. If those people aren't interesting, I think your movie's dead on arrival. For sure. But when done well, like this film and the ones I mentioned prior, I think you evoke a lot of claustrophobia yeah. from not being able to leave that boundary that they've set before you and this is on full display here in the supermarket and talk about a location that you'd want to be in and in some apocalyptic scenario you got your food you got resources until you know things start going awry which is the people inside i think that gets to a larger issue in the film for me and sort of one of the two kind of dueling themes about what this film is and that is what's worse mm-hmm. The monsters on the inside, and I mean that metaphorically and physically too, mm-hmm. on the inside of ourselves mm-hmm. and also on the inside of the store, or the monsters on the outside, yeah. which is what we're perceived by those around us. Yeah. And then literally in the movie, the monsters outside the doors of the supermarket. Mm-hmm. So they're here in the supermarket, they're gathering supplies, and all of a sudden here comes the mist. It's moving a lot faster now. Totally enveloping the supermarket. A few stragglers kind of get in, but everyone's kind of afraid to go. And especially the people that came in are talking about stuff that was in it. Guys coming back all bloody. So they really can't leave or they're afraid to leave. Right. Well, he comes in, but blood streaming from his nose. Yeah, that'd be uh, Jeffrey DeMunn, um, uh, who's playing Dan Miller, also from uh, Shawshank and, and Green Mile. Yeah, the lawyer at the beginning of mm-hmm. Shawshank. We don't ever get any answer as to why he's bleeding other than maybe when he fell, Mm -hmm. he might have banged himself up. Mm -hmm. But he comes pouring in out of the mist with a full heavy dose of sheer terror to panic Mm -hmm. to speed him along to the door, right? Yeah. So they let him in and it's kind of just like a bit of a normal day in the supermarket prior to that. The power's down so they're having to do some of the transactions old school with like the little slide guy with the Checkbooks, I think they said. Checkbooks. (laughs) Um... But they do have a generator, so the stuff is staying refrigerated, which is a nice sort of way to handle one of the problems in single location, especially when we're talking about the resources that they're going to have to start allocating. Yep. And he comes in, and it kind of spins them out a little bit. Yeah. Right? I think right away, too, I think this gets what's-her-name going, Miss Miss Car- Carmody, played by Marsha Gay Harden, mm-hmm. kind of spelling out, oh, this is the end of day, this, this, is, this is how it was written, this yep. is Armageddon. Yep. And right away you're like, oh God, this woman. Like, here we go, she, one yeah. of these. We got one of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got one of these in here, dear uh-huh. God. Yep. No pun intended again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're afraid to move from this mist. And you know, 
Frank Darabont, which let's actually talk about him for a little bit before we get going any further. Okay, yeah. I think a pretty interesting filmmaker, and I think I think this is film three or four for, for him. The guy hasn't made a lot of movies, but talk about being active in the business. He started out um, kind of co-writing some films with another uh, director, Chuck Russell, and one of their first films that they wrote, you love it, I love it, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like their first big gig, and they had to write it like on a tight sketch, like 10 days. Really? I didn't know they wrote that that quick. Really quick, and New Line was so impressed, and they let the guy direct it, and you know they, they got like main credit for it. And then they immediately went from that to their remake of The Blob with, with Kevin Dillon. Have you ever, you ever seen yeah, the, the, the remake of The Blob? One of the first two was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, at this point... Darabont became a bit of a what in Hollywood they, what they call a script doctor. Matt, yeah. can you explain a little bit to listeners what that is? So once the studio purchases a script from the writers, what they do is they'll bring in a hired gun essentially to clean up dialogue or uh, streamline the action sequences or uh, add some more comedic elements in there. So essentially, the script is written, and the script doctor comes in with specific instructions to we need this character to be more urban, or mm-hmm. we need a bit more comedy or whatever it is and the crazy thing about script doctors is most of them are based on genre needs so if you need the comedy guy yeah then you call this guy if you need the thriller guy like a very famous guy yeah that i know that no one else knows but i met the night that i met um ron she said mm-hmm. is bill martell mm-hmm. bill martell had so many t- like that night that i met ron she said we're talking about alien yeah i met bill martell and bill martell was basically the thriller action sequence guy. Mm-hmm. So if something needed to be beat up in the script, beat up means sort of plotted a bit better, planned out. They got him on speed dial. Bam, Bill Martell's in. And he made yeah. a career doing that. Yeah. But here's the thing, no credit. Yeah, they never get credit. Almost called them like ghostwriters, so to speak. They're like phantoms. Yep. And yep. another very famous one is Joss Whedon actually made <laughs> a career on this. Films like Doctoring Speed, Twister, like mm. those action films from the early 90s. So Darabont's actually done some patch-up work on Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, and most recently, uh, 2014's Godzilla. He actually added the whole Brian Cranston element to it, which that was probably the best part of the movie. So thank yeah. you. Thank you, Frank. Exactly. Uh, but he also, in the 80s, started this uh, partnership friendship with Stephen King. Right. So one of the things that King has... If one of his stories, and it's a lot of the stuff in his short collections, like Night Shift and uh, Skeleton Crew and all that, they call them the, the Dollar Babies. And for a dollar, you can enter into this partnership with King to produce your own short film and indie produce. He maintains creative control, but he allows you to use the story as the framework. Pretty cool little idea. It is, yeah. So Darabont actually made one of these Dollar Babies, The Woman in the Room. I think that's out of, I think that's Night Shift. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Darebound didn't really like how it turned out, but it started this friendship with King. So then they came. This is insane. Talk about not knowing where this was going. <laughs> a handshake deal for the rights to Rita Hayworth and, and Shawshank Redemption, wow. which wow, who knew that movie was going to become what it what it became and the legacy of it. Yeah. But that that started this oh. partnership and that led to Green Mile and then to to this, which he had wanted to do this this film uh, for a real long time. So. It's, I think there's a bit of a passion project for him. Mm-hmm. So talking about passion, one of the things he wanted to do for this film was shoot it in black and white or have it color converted to black and white, which, you know, that's black and white's a tough sell, especially for a modern day movie watching audience. Mm-hmm. 
he really wanted to harken back to those 50s monster movies like Tarantula and the Deadly Mantis. Because he essentially is making a monster movie right. uh, set in this small main town. And on the version I watched, you can actually watch the black and white version. I got to tell you, I don't think I can watch the movie any other way. Really? It you was, like it that much? It was really cool. Like, I didn't think, I was like, ah, it's just going to be black and like, but it's going to look so modern. It, it gave it a feel. It gave it a feel of that 1950s paranoia, that the McCarthyism, the Red Scare. And then also, you know, the Atomic Scare too, which is all these creatures were the result of atomic testing, Godzilla, Mantis, all these things. You kind of got that little feeling of nostalgia just with the, the, the tinting of the black and white. I, I really liked that. I thought that was a unique choice. I, I wondered about that because um, I have that on the DVD that I watched, but I've never watched the black and white version. Mm-hmm. The monsters in the movie are not such that colors matter that much to mm-hmm. them. Like we'll get into, like specifically, let's take the spiders. Yeah. They're white. Yeah. Guess what black and white looks like with white spiders? Yeah. Like they're supposed to be. Yeah. So you don't really get a whole lot of color when it comes to the monsters. Yeah. And the mist mm-hmm. creates kind of that white effect, which I'm sure gives it like a gray and heavy shadow effect in the DVD. Yeah. So um, I have yet to see it that way, but let me tell your, you the one thing. your vote, maybe I'll go for it. Let me tell you the one thing it did do, which, you know, this movie's 12, 12 years old now. Yes. Wow. Yes. One of the things old. that hasn't aged well for me was the CGI in it. It's yeah. A, it's a little video gamey and yep. a little... The black and white actually kind of masked how synthetic it looked at times, mm-hmm. and actually kind of made it a little, a little more believable. Hmm. Which, if you know, if I have a fault in this movie, is I think they showed the monster too much. And now, if you go back and listen to Alien, you know, I like that because of it's in shadow; you don't see it very much. I think as the film goes on, I think we see a little bit too much of these creatures in the mist. Oh, my insurance guy's gonna love me. Oh, shit. 1980. I was going to bring the station wagon, but I don't know. The weather was so beautiful coming out of New York. I just, you know, top down. I'm sorry, man. I mean it. Sincerely. That's nice of you to say. Oh, that car was cherry. I, I hate to see it like that. Okay, uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll find my insurance guy's number. I'll bring it by later. Is that okay? Yeah, no problem. So when we come back, we are essentially in the supermarket and we've sort of had the onset of this very heavy mist and the warning about why they shouldn't go out there. And we get to one of the really important parts in the movie, which is the woman who left the kids at home, Mm -hmm. who plays Carol later on in The Walking Dead, starts begging for someone to please escort her home because her eight-year-old, I think, daughter is in charge mm-hmm. of her younger daughter. Yeah. She's only going to be gone a few minutes, and she's worried that she forgets to take care of her, and nobody ponies up to help the woman mm-hmm. get home. And yeah. she actually calls them all out. Isn't any of you essentially chivalrous or man enough in here to see a lady home? And they start pleading with her, ma'am, don't go out there. It's what's best for the family. I love David's line, too. He's like, come on, man. I got, I got my own son to worry about. Really tough position. And this is going to be something that happens to David throughout the film. Is mm-hmm. I think he gets kind of an unfair shake. But that's what makes this movie so so memorable for me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she ventures into the mist off by herself. Yeah. And yeah. I guess we assume it's curtains. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So meanwhile, inside the, inside the supermarket, we sort of get okay, we're quarantined and now we've got to start thinking about the power and what we're going to do to conserve resources because you know how long we're going to be here. 
and we get this really crazy sequence that I've already mentioned, I think... Last week. Last podcast, mm -hmm. which is something is causing the generator to back up. Yeah, and they can't open this, like, back docking door. Right. So they head into, essentially, the loading station, and we get this really crazy sequence where the Shermanator from American <laughs> Pie... That's when I saw it this time. I was like, I was like, yes, totally. It was that kid from American Pie. That's good. So he curries up the fortitude to venture out into the mist because he's going to see what's blocking yeah. the generator and clear it out. And okay, so they raise up the door mm -hmm. to let him get out. And there, there's some discussion between David and kind Ollie, of Ollie and Ollie, and then William Sadler mm -hmm. and these other people about like, well, you're just trying to scare this kid and we don't believe you. Anyway, so long story short, up comes the door, in come the tentacles. Yeah, like four or five, like huge tentacles with like with sharp pincers and spikes and needles and they they rip the Shermanator like apart practically. Take a chunk out of his chest. Yeah. Doesn't die, but screaming in pain. But not before David can hack off a chunk with, with the axe before the door closes. So at this point, no more going outside because damn... Like, what the hell's out there? But now, also, they got to go back in the supermarket. Not only tell them that the bag boy is dead, but there's something out there. And this instantly starts the the rift with Brent, his neighbor, who will not, for the life of him, believe him. And he immediately starts going, like, don't touch me, man. Or, like, I'll sue you again. Like, you saw him. You witnessed and th this is a crazy part for me where they actually convinced the manager of the supermarket to come check out the tentacle, which is still kind of alive to speak. Yeah. But Brent doesn't go. And this he, this starts a whole kind of like uprising, the first uprising within the supermarket. And the question he's asking the help for is, what's the play here? We have to do something about this incident that just happened. I don't want these people to freak out, but we're sort of in charge of their protection. Mm -hmm. And he essentially goes to him, I think, out of respect. Yeah. And it's met with consternation and hostility petty just kind of general infighting and this is you guys trying to make a fool out of me because you don't like people that aren't local and all he has to do is go back into the inventory room that that garage mm -hmm. and there's a tentacle on the floor and he just doesn't do it it kills me it's crazy but david only gets two people to come along with him mm -hmm. and sure enough Store manager goes back there, and lo and behold, yeah. there is this crab-like tentacle that ends up turning to an acidic sort of gelatin, gel gelatinous thing on the floor, mm -hmm. and he's right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so from that point, then, it's what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And we're going to jump ahead a little bit, because like there is some discussion in the store as far as who's on what side and how is this going. But those people that are on David Drayton's side recognize this is serious. Mm -hmm. And so Ollie, who ends up really kind of being his sidekick in this, says... I just got to say, I think he's my favorite character in the movie. Yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, I love him. We need to see how far this mist is affecting the this area. Mm -hmm. So they send... I'm not even sure what that guy's name is, but one mm -hmm. of the prisoners that Starebond is used in the Shawshank Redemption yeah. to venture into the parking lot. Yeah, they tie it like a rope to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just to kind of see how far he can get, like sort of just to venture out. Like, I don't think he's planning on leaving, right? Yeah. He's just going to go check it out. Well, he gets out there. And the, I think in a brilliantly done sequence oh, yeah. where 
you don't really see what takes him, but it kind of pulls him like up, yeah. like skyward. Yeah. And they're trying to like reel him in and they're like, it, this rope's like ripping through their knuckles and everything. Yep. And finally they pull it in and they start pulling in blood on the rope. And then a little bit more, a little bit more, and they're just pulling up legs at that point, which it's a great visual image of trying to evoke what did that to him. So now everybody that doubted David Drayton has the visual proof, which is the lower half of the guy that they just sent out in the parking lot, Mm -hmm. all that's returned. But this starts an even bigger problem for the collective within the supermarket. This gets Marsha Gay Harden. Miss Carmody. Gets her going even more. Starts revving her engines of this being the Lord's work and this. So we go from that and then she's in the bathroom, right? Yes. Oh, She's, She's in the bathroom praying to some unholy version of the Almighty. Yes. And this this weird dribble of fire and brimstone and what's my place and all this. Mm-hmm. And then we get that sequence where she scores off against Amanda. And Amanda says, look, I know you're scared. And if you need a friend, I'm always here for you. And Marsha Gay Harden says, well, if I ever need a friend like you, I'll just have myself a little squat and shit one out. That's such a great line. Like, that's the character in a nutshell. It is. Now, real quick, do you want to share a little bit about your experience watching this film in the theater? I actually saw it in a pretty full theater Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I think I went into it with like, well, you know, most of the time Stephen King movies really are kind of (laughs) B-listy. Thomas Jane wasn't a huge star at that time. I don't Mm -hmm. even know if he'd done Boogie Nights at that point. Um, probably maybe. No, he had. Okay. But it's kind of a small part in Boogie Nights too. Yeah. Anyway, um, that Miss Carmody character played by Marcia Gay Harden Mm -hmm. is without question the most hated character that I have ever seen an audience cheer against mm-hmm. in my life in theater. And that's thousands of films. Yeah. I don't want to get to what happens later, but the the conclusion of that mm-hmm. is a pretty remarkable moment in film in that theater. But yeah. you could hear the people around like, oh, we got one of those. Like that Bible thumping, oppressive, yeah. holier than... like that. It's like Margaret White ripped from Carrie and placed in this film. It's funny you said that because <laughs> when, you know, Miss Carmody's story concludes in this movie, mm-hmm. it's very Margaret White-like. Oh, definitely. I had a similar experience. I saw it in a probably nearly sold... We were, maybe we were in the same theater. I have no idea. Might have been. It's nearly sold out theater and the, kind of the same thing. They were really reacting to this character. Like, oh my gosh. They were just like... Everything she was doing was just like... Just nails on a chalkboard to them. They just like couldn't like handle this character and again without spoiling you know how it turns out i have very few film characters have i seen you know people kind of react to that you know like heath ledger's joker comes to mind and um you know christoph waltz's hans landa like some characters that kind of jump off the screen and kind of evoke like a actual visceral response audience reaction she's right there in the conversation and it's the one no one knows about. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So it starts off as she's just kind of the town kook. Yeah. And it's actually called that when she starts. It's the end of days and sort of placated or pushed off to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, as the movie's going to progress, she starts to build up a congregation. Yeah. And by the time the movie reaches sort of its its penultimate moment, yeah. it's basically the entire store against david and his five or six allies yeah we're getting ahead of ourselves a little Mm -hmm. bit but yeah that's where this is headed but now they're just they're in just in survival mode right now trying to kind of wait it out wait for help they don't really know what's out there and we kind of get more of the 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 lineage of this uh 
creature. And it comes, you know, in the form of these waspy scorpion-type creatures, followed by these bird-like ones as well. I love that sequence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the night, you know, night descends, and people are sort of trying to busy themselves with things that they are comfortable with. Yeah. Making these stupid floodlights that are only going to work for five minutes in case the power goes out. At this point, we've stacked, like, dog food and charcoal against the windows in a very shoddy fashion that barely covers them at all. And then the little uh, the cashier girl kind of has like a little kind of romantic interest in one of these three military soldiers that are stocked up in there with them. Well, this that gets to a second theme for me in the film, which mm-hmm. is patience. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But mm-hmm. So we're getting a little character development as we are preparing for the onslaught. And you have to know that because they wouldn't set all of this up if something wasn't going to happen, yeah. right? It's like the proverbial highlight in sports yeah like of course that shot's going in because there's no highlight if they don't make it (laughs) right exactly okay so um sort of ill prepared for what's come although they think that they're kind of ready Mm -hmm. and they're biding their time like i think one guy fires up the grill to make like some barbecue chicken for them just to sort of ease the tension yeah okay so at this moment we're seeing these characters Finding or seeking comfort in their element Mm -hmm. so that they can quell or sate their fears about what's in the dark and unseen. Yep. Okay, so it's dark in the store. Yep. And they turn on flashlights. Yeah. Which draws those wasps that are uh, like basset hound size Mm -hmm. to the glass. Mm -hmm. A bunch of them, like 20, 30 of them. Right. And then there's a line that David says like, you know, what are we going to do if if this and that? He's like, as long as we just hope not one of those or he's talking with them when they're jimmying the lights like when are we going to use those yeah maybe if one of those things gets in here it literally happens in the next scene uh these pterodactyl bird-like things break through the glass let everything in and now it's just utter chaos and they're all the planning they could have done couldn't have prepared them for how shoddily things go and there's a few deaths and it kind of cracked up like talk about the darwin awards this guy could not have had like a worse fate he's like trying to like light up his his mop flame weapon thing kicks the bucket over that has gasoline in it trips on it sets himself on (laughs) fire he just sets himself on fire like talk about bad luck what's interesting to me in this is so the the like vulture things that come to eat the wasps on the window they're Mm -hmm. not there to attack the humans they're there to feast on they're just eating yep Right? That's like what they do on wherever they come from. They're just eating. Mm-hmm. And this is like their food source. So they come and they start devouring these wasp things. Obviously, it breaks through the glass. And now they're in amongst the humans. And the first one that gets in actually doesn't attack the humans. Mm-hmm. It's just chasing the bug in there. Yeah. And then the humans attack it. And then it responds. Mm-hmm. And then in, like its brother comes in. Yeah. So now there's two of them. And we get just general panicked bullshit yeah. from the people that are in there. I wonder if we had any listeners uh, from Australia. I think a lot of these things are actually from Australia. <laughs> the size and the thing. I'm joking, by the way. But like, <laughs> yeah. this is the type of shit you'd find in Australia. But one of these things lands on Miss Carmody. And it like she's like, you know, praying to the Lord. And kind of like, this is my time. My time is up. And this thing. Unless you want it to be otherwise. Yeah, it starts crawling on her. And then, yeah, she says that and it flies away. Okay. But, that, but she has her audience now. Right. They all see this witness that this thing didn't touch her. So now they start buying into this holy thing, this Christian element, which is going to screw up everything else. So 
we know about the dangerous elements of this wasp because just a few moments before it flies on Mrs. Carmody's stomach, mm-hmm. it stings the cashier who was just about to begin some romantic interlude with one of the military guys. Yeah. And there's an interesting moment prior to her being stung, which leads to her demise. And it's them in the locker room. Yeah. And she basically says, why did you wait so long? Mm-hmm. You've flirted with me since high school. I know you like me. Essentially, like, why didn't you make a move? And he kind of shrugs his shoulders. Like, <laughs> okay, like with no good answer other than like, I'm a pussy. Right? Okay, yeah. so um, so they kind of start this kiss. And then, Jesse, mm-hmm. think about this. Mm-hmm. She tells him, I want to wait. Not in here. So we get the reversal on this of her patience. Yeah. And this is going to be kind of continued throughout the film. Is like, how long are you willing to wait? When does it suit you? And when does it doesn't? So he waits, never asks her out, misses this girl. Yeah. She waits and I think dies a virgin. Not that that's sort of like the last will or the her will be done before she perishes. Sure, but yeah, totally. But yes, it is. Because mm-hmm. she's like, I just don't want to do it here. So she's thinking when we get out, you and me, we're going to roll. Yeah. And But dies a pretty horrible like... Wasp flies on her, stings her in the neck. She blows up to like 16 space sizes normal. And probably just asphyxiates. Asphyxiates. Yeah. So Miss Carmody has the same or a similar wasp land on her stomach. Yeah. Stinger poised, crawls up her. She says her, crawls up her abdomen, like kind of towards her neck area. Sends a prayer, skyward God, if this is my moment, let thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And the wasp flies away. Yeah. So now she thinks she's divinely chosen. Mm -hmm. And the people witness it and they think. Something about that woman's she, And she starts turning into, and I think they make reference to this in the film, she starts turning into like freaking Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Uh, drink, Kool-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. And I think David's like, we need to act. Like, not only do we need to get medicine for Berm Darwin victim over here, but we need to probably make a plan to get out of here because she's giving followers, give it a day, she'll have more people behind her. Like, this is the, the, this is going to turn on us whether you like it or not. And we like- start to see the store freak out though right away. So like mm-hmm. eventually this this skirmish with these wasps and these vulture things is I guess won by the inhabitants of the store. Yeah. Uh, pretty cool scene where Ollie pulls out a gun, which is going to be really important in this, and blows away mm-hmm. this vulture thing that's about to eat David Drayton's son mm-hmm. or attack David Drayton's son. And they really uh, um, pay attention to letting the audience know how many bullets are left in the gun. Well, it matters. Yeah, it's really going to matter. This is Carmody. Your very own Jim Jones. I'd like to leave before people start drinking the Kool-Aid. He's right. Like your people get, the better she's gonna look. No, I don't buy that. It's obvious she's nuts. Look, a few people, maybe, but... No, I count four. She's preaching to him right now. By noon, she'll have four more. By tomorrow night, when those things come back, she'll have a congregation, and then we can start worrying about who she's gonna sacrifice to make it all better. Hmm? Patience. You need patience while watching this. I mean, Matt, we talk about run times all the time and, you know, thinking about horror films. Horror films usually clock in at 1.30, like yeah. a nice pace. Right. This is like a two-hour and seven-minute movie. So not only do you have to have patience to sustain that, that runtime in one location, but these characters are also going through an endurance of patience as well. You mentioned something earlier that's really key. When you do single location, which mostly this movie is, you have to have really compelling characters or the audience gets bored because there isn't a whole lot of gloss and pretty to sort of you know entertain you as we're moving through it. We do get that, and we get it really through two characters, David and Miss Carmody. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have David and his acolytes and Miss Carmody and her acolytes are essentially apostles, right? And as we see 
the two sides sort of start to come to conclusions about how their species can survive, which is what this movie also is, yep. survival of the fittest, we start to see through the interior beasts of the grocery store, mm-hmm. which are religion, groupthink, morality, family responsibility, lack of leadership, lack of mobility, ignorance, and then like the allocation of resources with a limited supply, like the fundamental economic problem, scarcity, right? We see those things start to manifest themselves as the interior beast, not only in the store, Jesse, but in man. And Mrs. Carmody preys on those and creates her own mob. I think you're kind of getting to probably why Darabont was such a great choice to show run the first two seasons of The Walking Dead. Mm. I mean, these are... I liked to when I was watching it this time, I was seeing these scenes play out and I was like, this is such primer, prelude, appetizer to what that show became in mm. those first two years. Mm. You know, talking about, you know, the monsters within, you know, all these characters dealing with their own strife and drama and then showing the zombies for like five to seven minutes of an hour show. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah. And I think when that show was good and not only did he bring a lot of the actors from this film into that series he brought a lot of that same intensity that you're seeing in the supermarket you know really focusing on these characters and their internal monsters and drama and strife dealing with these outside entities and i think that's why i really like those first two seasons of that show and i kind of bailed after that like you said in season three you know you barely see you know much of anything in The Walking Dead, if you're not fighting the zombies, for there to be conflict, you have to fight your fellow man. The stakes are very high because there's a limited amount of resources. So you have to find a way to make sure that you can outlast the same people that are competing for the things you need for survival. That idea is what makes this movie really good in Darabont's directorial interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. I know they're in a grocery store. Yeah. And I know we like the idea, okay, so let's play this one. Mm -hmm. If there's a zombie apocalypse, Jesse, what store do you want to be in? Costco. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so the same, like, because there's everything there. Yeah. Problem is, the same thing with the zombies. You pick the place, and then you wall yourself in. So you can't get out, and sooner or later, you're going to run out. Okay, so two patients, Mm -hmm. which we talked about. Yeah. In The Walking Dead... You have to make sure that you can last longer than the people that are trying to take your stuff. And a lot of that show is being patient, waiting for something to happen as a viewer. And then also with Rick and all of his people. Okay, the same thing is with David here. Yeah. Here's the thing, though, that's the tricky thing about this movie when it comes to patience. Mm -hmm. It sometimes works to be and sometimes it works to not be. And the movie is not fair in the adjudication of which outcome you get. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably the right choice for that girl not to get it on in the locker room with just met my boyfriend and made out for 10 seconds. Let's get down to it. Mm -hmm. Probably the right choice. Like in whatever book that's book of right choices, I'm sure that's in there. Mm -hmm. But boy, they make her pay for it. Oh yeah. And then that guy, they also make him pay because he didn't act when he should have many years ago. And he missed out on everything but seven minutes of his girlfriend relationship with what seemed to be a pretty willing participant. And that is going to be consistent. Mrs. Carmody is also going to show 
what this patient is sort of interpreted by by um, Darabont in a really crazy moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go ahead. We have the night after. Um, well, they go, they go to the pharmacy to get medicine for burn victim guy. So the guy you mentioned that sets himself on fire yeah. literally cooks himself almost to death. Yeah. And here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Patients again. Yeah. That guy's going to die of his burn wounds. Mm-hmm. And David has already decided with his with his group, we got to get the hell out of here because yeah. she's going full Jim Jones over there and it's yeah. only a matter of time till they start drinking the Kool-Aid. But mm-hmm. there's the morality piece that I told you, which the internal beast is. Yeah. Morally, we got to protect. We, we, we got to do something to help the guy who's burned. So let's go next door to the pharmacy because they have burn aid and antibiotics. And if you think about that, Jesse... Why? Yeah. I mean, I don't want that guy to die. Yeah. Like morally, I don't want that guy to die. Yeah. But the weight of that moral decision—it's a terrible decision. Yeah. Who the? Not to mention, he leaves his son behind. Yeah. With some strange woman who is still a stranger, really. To go get some silver, whatever the hell they call that silver, <laughs> whatever it is that burn medicine <laughs> for this guy they don't know who's cooked to pieces. And let me tell you, and this is actually the scene that kills me the most in this entire film, is. You know, they go in there and there's a military guy all cocooned who's telling them, this is our fault, we did this, da-da-da-da-da. This is my deal breaker with King. I mean, King sets a lot of great premises, whether that be zombies invading a town, telekinesis, or, you know, this ghost hotel, or this killer clown. He then, you know, tries to do too much, and I think this is him doing... Too much. I know you got this strange mist that brought these mysterious elements. And then the military reveals that they were experimenting by opening up parallel dimensions. Man, like, thank God Darabont had restraint to not, like, show that scene. Because, Jesus, like, that's too much. That's too much in a story that's already pretty simple for the most part. You know, there's a suspension disbelief with these creatures. But opening up parallel dimensions, you know, we're entering some Stranger Things shit here at this point. I kind of don't like that. I kind of just wish it was some atomic creation. I don't know. I kind of wish it was, actually. I I don't like this scene. I honestly don't like this scene. So they go into the pharmacy, Mm -hmm. and they're getting the medicine, and they're attacked by spiders. Now, inside the pharmacy, they find some other military uh, people and just different... I guess victims that the spiders have hung up and we get kind of a, an homage to alien yeah, in a it's sense. Just like alien. I do like this scene. Actually, I don't, I actually don't like dislike this scene like you do. Okay. Okay. So they go in there, these spiders attack them. They have these acidic webs. There's this one soldier that has a bunch of like welts on him. They all burst about a million spiders rush out. Yeah. Uh, a couple people bite it in the store. Guy gets some webbing on his leg. It's acidic. The skin comes off. They get enough resources to get out. Mm-hmm. And then get back to the store to save the guy. Yeah. Only to find out that the guy's essentially already perished. Yep. Okay, so here's why it doesn't bother me. Okay. Okay, so the military plays a key role in the movie. Now, it's different in the book. Yeah. It's I think it's pretty much unexplained in the book how these yeah. things showed up in the mist. Which I, I'd rather I'd rather like that. Yeah, there's an argument to be made there. I won't, yeah, you yeah, won't yeah. find me. I don't disagree with sure. you. Sure. Why is the military exploring some parallel dimension because like we do have an interest yeah. in other planetary places and yeah. like what yeah. is out there beyond us yeah again to patience mm-hmm. sooner or later we will come to a conclusion on that yeah like in my mind i have a belief that no there's nothing yeah because it's just easier for me to be there yeah 
My wife teases me all the time. Yeah. Uh, you don't believe in ghosts because you just don't want to believe in ghosts. Because mm-hmm. Right. Okay, okay, fine. Guilty. So if we take the context of patience in this movie, yeah. if the freaking military would just wait it out, yeah. they'll get their answer, but they rush it. Mm-hmm. And they open up some parallel dimension to God only knows where. Yeah. And essentially... Uh, the dinosaurs from foreign dimensions show up yeah. and wipe us out or try to wipe us out. Again, patience. When do you wait? When do you know? Why did, why did you leave your son behind yeah. to go get medicine for this I, piece uh, of toast that used to be a human being? <laughs> this piece of burnt toast. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, just Because if you just waited, that guy wouldn't have died. And then like to the patience thing. Yeah. In the scene where the tentacles come under the door. Yeah. If they would just wait and listen, yeah. it wouldn't have happened. But so again, what Darabont probably with Stephen King's direction is let's create an element of time and how we're going to handle conflict in in time. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to give anybody a fair shake yeah. as far as when you should or when you shouldn't. And yeah. I love that mm-hmm. because the other key moment in this that we're going to get, remember the girl that was like, which one of you can take me and my, take me home to meet my, yeah, exactly. my, my children? We're going to see Carol again. Mm-hmm. So this leads right to them essentially crucifying this military guy when they eventually find out that they've been experimenting with shit up in the mountains. Okay, so His like, other two buddies have killed themselves in the meantime. And when, that, when the guy in the pharmacy's face and body explodes with yeah. the spiders, his last words are, we're the ones that did this. Mm-hmm. We opened the dimension, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so then that, that voice is echoed... From, I wish, William Sadler. Yeah. Who basically, when he comes back, is broken and decides he's going with Mrs. Carmody. And he tells the whole store. Freaking Judas. Judas, exactly. (laughs) Right, Jesse, perfect. So, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Judas, yes. Judas tells the whole store, man, the military did this. And so now, Miss Carmody, that guy right there, he's the one. He's the hellbringer. And they fucking crucify him. They feed him to some elephant-type creature. Stab him a couple times, lock him out, and this elephant creature comes along and gobbles him up. And just takes him away. The military guy has been fed to the monster outside. Miss Carmody tells everybody the beast is, is sated and he will not want anything until tomorrow. At which point, Drayton passes out. I guess a day goes by. Or some time goes Maybe not a day, but mm-hmm. some time goes by. And he's woken at dawn by amanda and she says we've got some groceries and it's time for us to go Mm -hmm. so he wakes up his son they head to the front door the groceries are missing which were stationed behind the cash register Mm -hmm. and we found out that miss carmody has them behind her she's guarding them with a knife and the will of god yeah so she's not gonna let them go this is kind of like this is like the ultimate ultimatum here they want the boy now, the boy's going to be like their sacrificial lamb. Pure of heart, it will be more appreciated by the beasts and it will leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And so the whole store, save David and his like seven or eight people, mm-hmm. begin to attack them. He grabs, a, what's it, a broom handle, kind of fins them off. Yeah. And then we get think- the most memorable <laughs> moment from an audience for me in film ever. You want to do it? I think this is why I love Ollie so much. So Ollie who's had this gun the whole time and he's down to like seven or eight bullets yeah. at this point. Puts one in Miss Carmody's chest. Everyone freaks out kind of out of nowhere. And then he puts another one in her head. And I'm with you. If there wasn't like people standing and applauding that this religious fanatic Yahoo was finally dead. The place erupted into applause. Yeah. 
You know what I love about that scene too? Mm-hmm. Is prior to her being shot, she's drinking milk. Yeah. Like the mother of humanity versus mother nature. Yeah. Oh my God. The fact that she's just, just down in some milk. Yeah. Because she wouldn't drink liquor. But the implications of milk and motherhood mm-hmm. for Mrs. Carmody and that to me mm-hmm. are loaded. Okay. Yeah. So she takes a slug through the thing of milk in her stomach. Yeah. And then another one right in her dome. Yeah. And down she goes. And they escape. Mm-hmm. There's like eight or nine of them, but like only only five of them make it to, to the van. Ollie bites, bites the bullet from this elephant-like creature, this huge, gigantic thing. David grabs the gun now that it has a few bullets left, and they, they make off out of, out of this out of this town. Kind the plan of, the whole time has been, let's go south for as long as we can with the gas in the tank, and mm-hmm. maybe we can get clear of the mist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we go to, it's like six or seven minutes without much dialogue. Maybe not that long. Three yeah. or four minutes without dialogue. Mm-hmm. They're just driving. Yep. And it's... As we're driving through the countryside, we see some rather interesting, more monsters. There's like a brontosaurus thing with some of those vultures flying underneath his stomach. And mm-hmm. like, they're just in awe yeah. of what has happened. And as we're on the road, yeah. man, the scene that's chilling to me is they drive by that school bus. Yeah. And there's the one kid that didn't get off. Yeah. And he's covered in spider webs and his sullen, hollow face. Yes. And then they go like before that, when they drive by David Drayton's house to mm-hmm. pick up his wife. Yeah. Okay, back to my patience. Yep. His final line as he's looking at his wife that's really kind of the only understandable thing that he says is, I told... Like, she's on the patio in a spider web, kind of ghastly, ashen white, like been sucked dry of all her blood or whatever the hell has happened to her. Frozen, I don't know what. Mm -hmm. And he says, I told her I was going to fix that. Yeah. I never got the chance to fix it. Mm -hmm. And again, that, that crisis of time. Yep. And when are you supposed to wait and when are you supposed to act? Exactly. So then they eventually run out of gas and they're still very deep in the, in the mi- middle of it in the mist right now. So, yeah. the, you know, the boys asleep and they're just hearing shit outside. That sounds awful. That elephant thing, shit flying around. And they come to a decision that it'd probably be best to end it now versus face whatever's outside, which, you know... A lot of this film is, could you put yourself in these characters' shoes and what would you do? If it was your wife at home, if it was your kids at home, would you leave through this thing that you're unaware of and would you go do that? If you're stuck in this situation, what what would you do? And it comes to the decision that there's four bullets left, there's five of them, someone's got to do it, David's of course going to. And I think really, really heartbreaking, you know, the boy's asleep <sighs> and as he's about to off all these characters and this thing he kind of wakes up and like looks at dad all kind of half dazed and i want to say very tactfully done by by darabount he moves the camera to outside and we just see four flashes and four bangs and then we go back inside and we see kind of the aftermath the blood on the windows the the dead in the in the back and his visceral reaction to what he's just done it's hard to watch. Like this, this is a hard scene to kind of to kind of get through. It's talk about going from you know kind of this supermarket politic kangaroo court type of atmosphere to this moment. Wow, it's it's a gut punch. What trips me out about that scene too is who he shoots. Mm-hmm. He shoots his surrogate wife Amanda. Yep. yep. He shoots grandma and grandpa in the back seat, mm-hmm. and he shoots his son. So essentially, he sacrifices his family because he has determined. That in the survival of the fittest, that it's man 
and its capabilities versus these beasts and their capabilities, mm-hmm. man's going to lose. Yep. And then we get what we think is the end. Mm-hmm. So he takes the gun, he fires a couple empty rounds into his throat, praying to God that there's maybe one more bullet, and he miscounted. Of course, there's nothing. He steps out of the car. Mm-hmm. Takes the position like he's getting frisked by the cop and starts, come on, get me, get me, like begging one of these monsters to come put this man out. He just killed his son, Jesse. Mm-hmm. And these other ones, like that matters too, but it's his son. Yeah. And he's been, he loves his son. He, like, it's a sacrifice of his son because he knows he's not going to make it. Yeah. And we get the rumbling <laughs> in the mist, which is like, okay, here it comes. Here comes that elephant thing. It's going to get and me. Behold, oh, good God. It's the fucking military. Yeah. And this, they are laying siege this to every monster in their path and burning off the mist as they Flamethrowers, so. the tank, and then a convoy of like rescuees and school buses and tanks and this and, and who's that. in there? Carol. Carol. <laughs> who's there with you? The, they got her daughter. She's like, she's, she survived. More to that idea mm-hmm. of patience Mm -hmm. nobody gets to know what the right answer is and most of the time in this film yeah the way the path you choose is the wrong path yeah this is this nobody gets no one gets rewarded in this film exactly this ending ventures into what i would like to call shakespearean territory for sure you know shakespearean wrote his obvious tragedy plays titus andronicus hamlet romeo and juliet that ended in Moments like this, bloodbaths of utter fate, where if the characters had played things out differently, they wouldn't have ended up here. But the 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 rule of law, you know, Murphy's law, you know, ended them up here to this moment. This is so tragic. Like I know I talk to a lot of people that have seen The Mist, and I think there's two camps. There's people that really really like this ending, and there's some that really really hate this ending. Yeah, I'd be in the first camp on that. I love it. It's, and it, I think it's we're not, in that. It's, I, go ahead. I think we're in that camp, Matt, because I th- we've in our lifetimes. I think we've seen thousands and thousands of films, and I think very rarely are we like thrown for a loop, shocked. And I'm all about a happy ending. Your favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. Talk about an uplifting from the same director, yeah. And then talking about going to the polar opposite to yeah. something that leaves you very broken, very stunned, and just utterly defeated. It's literally the last shot of the movie is him screaming at the top of his lungs as the military tries to rescue whoever they can. I think this is a very brilliant ending, and I like that Darabont stuck to his guns to not really change it. This was the ending he wanted to do. Any idea? A lot of studios would be scared to even touch something like this. Every movie's got to end with the happy ending, right? Right. It's a better ending than the author wrote. Mm -hmm. Stephen King basically just leaves it in this nebulous of, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's such a clever ending. You said brilliant. I think I would echo that sentiment. So check it out. Like the military is the onset of this crisis. Mm-hmm. The military is also the cure for this crisis. Yeah. We talk about morality when it comes to family and the expediency of now. Mm-hmm. And that is completely at the whim of fate. No matter what planning you have one way or the other, it won't matter. We have this very difficult yet necessary act in david's perspective to give his son an outcome that's coming which would be death but in a way that's not as horrifying as what these monsters are going to be by eating him Mm -hmm. and as we go through this you're left with this idea of oh my god had he just waited two more minutes (laughs) and then you get carol in the back with her kids because they made it yeah 
And this is what I love about the ending. Mm-hmm. The final comment on the movie is, and this happens a lot when man is stripped of, shall we say, um, the expediency of now. Mm-hmm. So when all of our amenities are gone and we're left to our own devices, most of the time in film we're worthless. Yep. Okay, so this movie makes that same statement, but it says, yeah, you're going to lose it and you all are going to freak out. But I want you all to understand just how difficult it is now mm-hmm. to strip you of all of your devices. Because the military is essentially one of mankind's coping devices. Mm-hmm. And it gets back to the one weapon that man has that's celebrated in this film versus the beast, which is its mental capacity. Yeah. Right? Because the thought went into create the military and make the tanks and the flamethrowers and it's also a great big middle finger Mm -hmm. to religion yep because in mrs carmody's hands it's the exact opposite of freedom of thought it's the perpetuation of ignorance through oppression Mm -hmm. and fear and that is such a clever intelligent brilliant to me compelling story thread Mm -hmm. that's all tied with a touch of patience in there yeah I love it. Mm-hmm. The closest thing I could echo this ending to resembling was probably the ending to seven. Kind of another tragic turn of events that, you know, these endings, when the films end, you and the fam aren't going out to get like ice cream after that. You're like going home and like hugging each other or something like it's it definitely leaves you with a very visceral reaction. And I think it's I think the ending itself is one of a kind. Uh, but. That's probably a good place more than ever to get into our ratings of the film. So just a quick review for for those listeners that are jumping on uh, at different points. We have a pretty intricate uh, rating system based entirely on on liquor. And the rating system goes as follows. Rock cut, you know, the bottom of the barrel. Uh, Well, kind of kind of a little bit better than rock cut, but still not great. Call that middle of the line. Call, you know, the maker's mark, etc. And then we have single barrels, those unique films, those four-star entries that you know are pretty good. They're not quite what you'd put at the tippy top, but pretty unique entries. And then the top shelf, the best of the best, you know, the films that'll stand the test of the time, the films that really speak to to me and Matt. So Matt, I'll ask you first: How would you rate The Mist? For me, it's top shelf. I think it's a very unique film. I really like this film, so that helps. So it's really good top shelf. And the thing that separates this from what could just be another monster movie is that ending. (laughs) You said it. Frank Darabont had to defend what that ending was going to be to the studio executives. And you know they said, look, man, we got to give these guys at least some light at the end of this film. Or at least make it so ambiguous that it's not Mm -hmm. the most dour, dark thing. Like, it's honestly, Mm -hmm. you said Elizabethan tragedy. Mm -hmm. In film, I can't think of a more tragic end that's done through one's own decisions ever. Yeah. And like to have the stones to say, this is the movie that I'm going to make and give Stephen King the ending that he's so oftentimes incapable of coming with himself in his writing. Yeah. It's top shelf. There are, there is not another monster movie out, not another monster movie out that has an ending the way this film does. Mm -hmm. I think it is superb. I know a lot of people don't like this movie based strictly on the ending of it. Mm-hmm. And I can see the argument on that side. But for me, 
I love the monsters. I think the spiders are cool. Um, it's infinitely rewatchable to me, which is something that very few films are. So if you take rewatchability, a very unique ending, and then all of the things that we said that go into make mm-hmm. a one location film. Yeah. I don't know how this can't be anything but top. To me, it's the it's the epitome, the iconic top shelf film. Top shelf plus. Excellent. Excellent. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with. You know, I really do like this film. I think I was telling you before, this might be the third or fourth time that I've actually watched it. Actually, I haven't seen it that often. It's hard to revisit with such, with such an ending. You're not watching that every weekend yeah. for movie night. But I, this is a really unique entry, but I think I want to speak more to very underrated. I could probably, you know, talk to just a crowd of people and ask, have you ever seen The Mist? I mean, even my group of friends, there's very few of them that have seen this film. And... I think you need to, whether you're going to like it or not, you know, it it brings that 50s monster sensibility, you know, those 50 B movies, the tarantula, Godzilla, you know, films like that. Yeah. Yeah. Into, into the modern, into the modern world by way of King and Darabont. But I think Darabont brings out the best in King while also bringing the elements that make him such a great filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shame he doesn't make more films because I think he'd be, you know, I think he'd bring his A game, you know, every time. I'm probably going to steer in the direction of, of a single barrel film. It's, it's probably not my favorite-ish monster movie, but for a film, you're right. In the last 19 years of the new millennia, uh, maybe the most, one of the most underrated, you know, we talked about Unbreakable being so, so underrated in our first episode. This is right there with that. And it's a film that I recommend to a lot of people. And even so, now that I've seen it, if I watch it with someone, I'm going to actually probably watch them watching the movie so yeah. I can see their reaction, especially this gut punch of an ending. And if that's not a topic conversation for, for your, for your, your group of, you know, ethics and could you, could you pull the trigger? I mean, the guy kills his son for God's sakes. Like that's, that's hard to fathom. What would you do in that situation? And that's what I find myself asking when I watch the movie, how would you react in this situation? Um, I don't like the, the parallel dimension elements, and I think they showed the monsters too much. But the strength of this ending alone um, really elevates the film for me. Uh, single barrel, unique. Go see it. Go rent it. I don't know if it's on any streaming service, but find this movie. Excellent. So before we leave for the week, uh, we'll head off with a little nightcap, a little bit more of the Russell's Reserve. And, you know, because this film has left us with such a gut punch talking about this film, final scene what better way than to leave with the nightcap question of twist endings so there's been a lot of really great ones in film history a lot come to mind so this really sparked this question so matt what is your favorite twist ending in a film there's some that come to mind but it's actually funny you mentioned the one that i was going to go with tonight just mentioned it Mm -hmm. so the sixth sense is in contention um, I would argue the deer hunters in contention. Uh, Deliverance to me was pretty twisty, mm-hmm. but you said it, yeah. and it's one of my all timers. Mm-hmm. It's seven. The ending of that film and finding out what exactly is in the box and what that means in the prospects of John Doe's master plan being completed. Man, I got to tell you, I had no idea that was coming. Mm-hmm. And that, like, I think sometimes when the final line in the movie becomes the spoof. 
it's done comedically out of a sense of homage to it and that what's in the box mm-hmm. there's no way her face is and yeah it is or her head yeah in the box mm-hmm. and to me so i mean we kind of gone back and forth on this a little bit and I've, all night long but it's funny you mentioned seven it's seven yeah how about you you want to talk about shakespearean too like talk about a horrific twist of fate yeah. uh that's like that's like the ending of hamlet the ending is just a total bloodbath and i love that fincher also like darabount had the restraint not to show you what you so kind of want to see mm-hmm. that you sickly want to see you want to see the head in the box you want to kind of see him shooting all these people but he doesn't do it and i think that's masterful and you know i'm with you that that movie the writing all the acting everything reaches the pinnacle of where they were aiming at such a perfect nucleus that's a fantastic ending i, I that, that, that's that's a great one to pick yeah Myself, I, I really, I don't know if I'm picking the best twist ending, but I'm picking my favorite. And it's the one that evoked the most visceral reaction from me just because I had no no idea this was going to happen. So it's the first Saw film from 2004. And this series has kind of a bastardized future past this first film in the torture porn genre, whatever. This first film's fairly bloodless. There's the one axing off of the, of the foot by Carrie Elway's but talk about an introduction for James Wan into this horror genre. And he gives you such a gut punch at the end of this film when you kind of think the guy running around is the jigsaw killer and the character Adam plays his tape and he was under a test the whole time too. And as the camera brilliantly pans around to him, we see this guy get up in the middle of the room who shot his brains out, who's been alive the whole time. And he gets up and pulls the prosthetics off, and this is Jigsaw. Jigsaw. And he's been in the room this entire film, slams the door on Adam, tells him game over. I was I watched this movie alone in my room, and I was literally sitting there with my hand over my mouth saying, this movie didn't just trick me like that. Mm-hmm. I'm smarter than that. But it did it, and it was such a cool feeling. And it n- never echoed or replicated in any of the sequels, but I've never been so tricked by an ending not even in catfish yeah <laughs> but something as simple as literally just a dude laying there on the floor you for all time he was for there. an entire movie so that is awesome i gotta pick that one and spoiler alerts to all these endings and everything we're talking about mm-hmm. seek out these movies so you can have these reactions for yourselves i think the mist is a great not just watch it by yourself but like gather a group of friends watch the mist if they haven't seen it just so you can see how they're going to react because they're going to be there's there's no way you see that coming no way like there's it's not telegraphed at all a lot of twist endings are kind of shown to you along the way if you're kind of wise enough uh not that one not that not one. that one at all so excellent what a great episode love talking about this this film i hope some of you will seek it out uh but the moment is upon us Next week, we will reach the final film in this cask of King's Landing Part 1 with the uh, day and date release of Pet Cemetery. This will be coming out a, a, a week from Friday. And I'm kind of excited to see it. It's getting some pretty pretty decent buzz. I know they've done some twists with the story. It's not They're not following it exactly. They're kind of switching things up a bit. But we get to visit our friend Claude Rains again, uh, Jason Clark. Jason Clark. He's the lead in this film with John Lithgow, and 
I'm ex- I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see the, the the way they take it because you know for whatever qualms the original has, I actually think the original is a pretty great horror film as well. We could have done that one in this cask as well. Certainly. But that's coming next week. Go see that in the theater as well. And until next week, um, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. And we'll see you all next week with our review of Pet Cemetery. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Be patient. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play Music, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. The Mist is property of Dimension Films, Darkwoods Productions, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Well, if you need a friend, you know, someone to talk to. I have a friend. God up above. I talk to him every day. Don't you condescend to me. I'm sorry? Not ever. You don't mock me. That's not what I was doing. <laughs> well, I tell you what. The day I need a friend like you, I'll just have myself a little squat and shit one out. <laughs>